Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this is our fourth season, we're looking at Kenneth Branagh's 2011 film, Thor. I'm Matthew Fox from TheEthicalPanda.com. And I'm Andy Nelson from The Next Real Film Podcast. Today we're talking about Minute 76, which begins with Thor and Jane continuing their rom-com moment and ends with Falstag showing that he just does not understand stress eating. Uh, joining us on this episode today, we have Miles Stokes and Elizabeth Alley from the podcast Thor, The Lightning and the Storm. Uh, Miles and Elizabeth, great to have you with us. Thanks for having us here. We're very excited to get a chance to come back together after all these years to talk Thor with a couple of folks who have been talking <laughs> a great deal of Thor. Yes, thank you for this opportunity for our own mini reunion. Yeah, well, it's great to have you. I mean, often we get people who are like, yeah, I love comic books. Thor's a little new to me, but it sounds like for you all, like the Thor love goes very deep. Well, originally, you know, Miles was really the Thor aficionado. Like, I grew up on old school on Kenny X-Men. Like, that was really in my blood. So when he originally invited us to do the podcast back in the day, 2017, that was sort of the premise that he was like the old school Thor died in the wool enthusiast. And for me, it was really the first time I had sat down and read Walter Simonson's Thor all the way through. Nice. Nice. Well, I'm really looking forward to having that. Um, you know, it, it, when you're watching the movie, it's just always so interesting to get to hear perspectives from the comic book side of it and things like that. And we'll get all that right after this. Lots of mayhem this week with the battle with the Destroyer. Uh, if you want to jump in on the conversation with us about all of the juicy stuff going on this week, we would love to have you. We have a growing group of Marvel fans in our Discord community. We'd love to have you be there as well. Just go to truestory.fm slash Marvel Movie Minute and click on the Discord link. It's that easy. So last week, uh, I laid bare my deep love of rom-coms and how many rom-com tropes we, we were experiencing last week. Uh, today, we're hitting just a little bit more of that. We've got the nice swell of the music, the firelight. They both look beautiful. Uh, what, 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 do you, what you guys got to take on this, these last few moments we get of the two of them learning about science while gazing lovingly into each other's eyes? I mean, shared interests are important for any relationship. And uh, deep cosmic moments where you completely rewrite someone's view of the entire universe also you know it's a good like first second date activity it doesn't always work out but it seems quite well received yeah. here even if we only cover a handful of the nine realms what i came away with from this is you know this is the beginning of you know kinder gentler humbler thor but also i think it kind of stems from here he gets to feel valuable here he's imparting knowledge you know to jane who he knows is this respected scientist so kind of like when he says Thank you, Jane. It's kind of like, yes, you hit me with your car, picked me up, brushed me off. But also <laughs> you're making me feel like useful and valuable again, which is a great foundation for a relationship. Look, hit with a car is a meet cute like that you have to have. And yeah, now we're getting much more of the connection thing. And I, I, li I like what you're saying there about that. This is him getting to be valuable for something that has nothing to do with his muscles, that has nothing to do with his hammer, that has nothing to do with his fighting. It, it's his intellect, which is not something that Till now, we've seen people really honor in Thor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the initial mythology, as I understand it, I'm, I'm no expert, but one of Thor's deals is that he's not so smart. He's very good at hitting giants in the head with hammers, and basically, that's it. Yeah. 
Well, the whole premise of the movie is that he is all brawn, no brains, that he runs to Jotunheim ready to kick ass and has not thought it through at all what will, it will mean for him or the rest of the realm. So mm-hmm. this is his, his, instead of the Grinch, his brain is growing like 10 times larger. And it's also interesting that, I mean, this is the, I mean, you know, we don't, we haven't seen Thor in any romantic sort of situations, but my, my sense is that it seems like this is also another side of Thor that probably a lot of people back in Asgard haven't seen a romantic Thor. I feel like Thor is generally, you know, whining and dining the women and having his way with them. And that's kind of been his story. I mean, that's, Mm -hmm. that's really what it seems like, right? And so this does seem like in so many counts, a different type of Thor right here. And it kind of makes sense. I mean, you know, you go off to college, you have for the first time, you have a chance to be a different version of you. You don't have to just live up to your family's expectations, your friend's expectations of you as the heir to Asgard and winer and diner of various women. Like you can explore a new side of yourself that perhaps is more genuine. And realistically, in Asgard, the balance of power is hopelessly stacked in Thor's, you know, favor. It's centuries of people knowing who he is. So this is the first time where really he kind of has to earn it a little bit. It's not just yeah. a given that she's going to fall into his arms. No, it's very true. And, and and that's an interesting point because it's it's interesting because, you know, after they have their cute little giggle moment at the start of this, after mispronouncing Hubel, um, you know, Jane kind of gets serious again and asks him to uh, tell her more. And it's one of those little moments where, you know, I feel like she's, I mean, she's a scientist. She's actually curious, like this whole exploration of the universe through Thor's eyes, as far as these realms, that is something that she's never heard of, is very interesting. But also, I I think it plays really well kind of into that, you know, this is a romantic moment. She doesn't want the moment to end. She wants it to kind of keep going. So I think it ends up kind of being a little bit of both. And it you know, I think it makes it work that way where Jane is in it for the smarts and the science, but also, you know, there's there's a romantic angle. And one thing that I really liked, uh, you know, taking in, in, in finding all that balance, but especially what you all were saying earlier about how this is him realizing, like, this is not just the woman who's going to fall into his arms. There's kind of a dog that doesn't bark here moment of generally when there's like a, a fade to, you know, fade up to the moon as they're talking and then you fade back and you see him like lying back. I fully expected to see her head on his shoulder, you know, and then when she like leans, when he leans over to fix her sleeping bag, I fully expected him to put her arm, put his arm around her, you know, because that's like, that's what you do. That's the next. And the fact that he didn't do either of those things was to me, it was like, yeah, no, he doesn't. He's not just thinking, okay, we've had one nice conversation. It's on like there's there's a connection there, but he's letting it take its time. And I just it it was just little details like that that go against the, the very obvious trope that we're playing with here that I really loved. That's an interesting point and actually certainly worth discussing because, I mean, you know, back in the in the days of the production code, we certainly had moments where, you know, there'd be a romantic moment between two characters and then you'd cut to a train going into a tunnel or something like that. You know, that sort of trope to imply something else happens here. Here we have this conversation and it dissolves to a beautiful shot of the moon and then it cuts back to the two of them laying back. I mean, they, you know, he may as well have a cigarette in his mouth. Is there an implication that something happened here or are we just meant to, based on what you were saying, Matthew, that the two of them really did just kind of fall asleep comfortably just next to each other. Their hair was not must at all. So I must, (laughs) if something happened, I don't think it was worthy of the, the, of Thor. So I like to feel that (laughs) he, he's being respectful and not entitled. You know, he, for once he is observing and learning before he rushes 
to to the point. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. Like, I think what you're picking up on, Andy, I think that was very intentional. I think it was supposed to be like, this is normally the train in the station or in, in my personal boyhood favorite, The Lost Boys of the the, the waves crashing on the beach. Wonderfully <laughs> awful movie. Um, but yeah, and it's just nice to see like that 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 different side of him. Another thing I, I noticed in the scene that I wanted to ask you all about, because Andy and I have been going back and forth on this. In the movie, and I'm curious in the comics, like the nine the nine realms of Yggdrasil and all that, like I know about from Norse mythology, and obviously there it's a part of the comic books, but we've been kind of wondering how does that fit with the the fact that, you know, now in the MCU and certainly in the Marvel comics, there's many more than nine worlds. You know, there's nowhere, and then there's the, the planet of the, the the scrolls and the krill and like all the all these kind of groups. Um I think I just made a name from some other thing. <laughs> you all know what I mean. And, and and we were wondering, like, so does Midgard refer to Earth itself or to, like, the solar system or to, like, this plane of existence? And, and here he very specifically says Midgard Earth. Uh, and I'm very curious, in the comics, is Midgard very specifically, like, is Mars not Midgard? What? How- no. It's a joke in our thing. Whenever they say Midgard in the comics, there's an asterisk, and down below goes Earth. Mm-hmm. Midgard earth like it's our it's our little in joke with everybody who's ever read the comic you know but but yeah they make it very specific to that but that's an interesting question because i never thought about that it is supposed to be the universe and not the planet right it's it's kind of unclear i mean there's an area where the thor mythology i mean we see this movie grapple with it uh certainly the idea of okay are these literal gods of the history of earth are they this alien race, et cetera? And much has been done in many different directions in the comics about that. My interpretation was always that Yggdrasil was all within Earth-616, within the main Marvel universe. It's not other dimensions. It's not parallel universes. It's just that, you know, we have Midgard, we have Muspelheim, we have Vanaheim, we have whatever. Those are within Earth-616. And also we have, you know, Shi'ar space in this direction and the Kree Empire in this other direction. Uh, whether that's accurate, I don't know. I suspect that it kind of depends on the writer. Like, I know that the the way Asgard was portrayed, the way the Nine Realms were portrayed, kind of changed over the course of the Thor comic. For instance, when Walter Simonson, the writer who covered what we covered on our, our podcast, the writer who wrote that, when he was doing Thor, he was working in more and more and more traditional Norse mythology, sort of renormalizing the Marvel version. So as with so many things in comics, I think the answer is it's inconsistent. So we kind of get to pick the version of the story that we like and go with that. That's fair. That works. <laughs> well, as, as we know from the movie, and we'll talk about later this week, there are plenty of inconsistencies even within the film itself. So, you know. <laughs> Yep. It's all fine. It's all fine. <laughs> the inconsistency, of course, that I focus on is there's a really lack of um, eyebrow uh, continuity. Sometimes they're mm. bleached. Sometimes they're mm-hmm. brown. Sometimes they're thick. Sometimes they're not. Like, I was like, they, they, they did not figure out what was happening with his uh, makeup test yet, which I'm glad they figured that out later. It's, it's just Thor exploring different aspects of himself as far as the blowhard personality <laughs> versus the quiet nobility, the dark eyebrows versus the light eyebrows. It's just it's self-discovery. It's a journey. <laughs> yeah. With, with, with both uh, Tom Hiddleston and Chris Hemsworth, I feel like they look beautiful in this movie, but it took them a while to figure out, like two or three movies in to really figure out the hair, the makeup to really make them look as wonderful as they <laughs> wind up doing. Tom Hiddleston looked so young and so thin to yes, me. Like exactly. he looked so slim and boyish. And it was just like, oh, it's like when you're a teenager and you think you're a grown up and then you look back at pictures of yourself 20 years later, you're like, oh, my God, it was a child. Like, yeah, it's, it's right. that sort of. 
<laughs> definitely, definitely. Um, and of course, we just have like the wonderful music by uh, Patrick Doyle here, and it, it's playing so on the the Thor theme itself, right? But just kind of in a more romantic way. It's, yeah, it's a very romantic version of of Thor's theme, which is just, I mean, it's it's a perfect use of it. And it, you know, Patrick Doyle, I mean, you know, he's a great composer. There's a reason that Kenneth Branagh has used him as long as he has. It just, I mean, taking that that really robust uh, kind of epic theme that we have for Thor, like when we first hear it, when Thor is being introduced at the coronation, and it's just like, you know, it's, it's a very big theme. But here, it's just, it's so soft, and it, it really carries the romance of the moment uh, just incredibly well. So I, I really love how he was able to adapt that theme to make such a romantic moment here. Yeah, it's always been my missed opportunity in the Marvel movies that there's not enough romance. Like, they mm -hmm. definitely do, like, the eye candy part, like, more with Thor, I think, than anyone else, except for, you know, Cap-Ass. But, um, <laughs> you know, like, to me, it's true. There's not enough romance until we get to WandaVision. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping that as they continue, that they can find a little more room for that, yeah. maybe in the next movie. Well, and of course, our next Thor movie is Thor Love and Thunder, and Jane's back for it. So, yes. yeah. yeah. I, I think we're going to get a little bit more there. I think we've heard Valkyrie's bisexuality is going to be officially canonized on screen. We might get some romance there. But you're right. No, it's been, um, uh, with the, the marked exception of Paul Rudd uh, and his Dorian Gray portrait in, in Ant-Man and the Wasp, we've not gotten uh, too much there. It'd be nice to get more. Uh, so anything else on this kind of the, the, the two of them romantically up on the roof in the very, very unromantic porch chairs before we move on to the uh, second half of the scene? I did want to talk a little bit less about the romance and more about the content of their conversation and specifically Thor's illustration, because he's drawing Yggdrasil, he's drawing the world tree as something that looks very, very spacey. And that's certainly the way the world tree is shown in this movie. And I think this is where the first Thor movie really shows itself as one of the earlier Marvel movies, where they were still hedging their bets a bit. Like, are the audiences really going to be able to buy a bunch of planets sitting around on a literal tree with an eagle at the top, mad at a snake dragon at the bottom, and a squirrel uh, causing fights <laughs> between the two? I I'm thinking of Shang-Chi specifically, where there is absolutely a literal dragon. There is absolutely this magical fantasy dimension that, that you can get to with weird little creatures in it. Yeah. And it's just interesting to look at these early movies and just see Marvel kind of unsure about whether they can get away with it and finding these almost middle grounds in the same way that thematically Thor is trying to find a way he can explain this bizarre concept to an Earth scientist. Sorry, a uh, Midgardian scientist. Yeah. Do you think Chris Hemsworth drew that? Probably not, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I, we were debating. Well, I mean, I yeah, I I think that those I I want to say that those lines that he draws as the quote tree branches uh, they those seem to be his uh you know his part of the drawing and mm -hmm. you know possibly the ones that are the, the needing the most work as far as like what a tree <laughs> really looks like. But, I mean, um, like. <laughs> You know, when you live in Asgard, like, people have maps of Yggdrasil all around. You probably don't have to draw. Like, I, I can recognize a map of Minneapolis in Minnesota. I've never had to draw one myself. So, you know, maybe it's just never asked it. But, but you know, it, it, it is kind of interesting. I think um, for me as someone who knew Norse mythology quite well, I actually when I um, I used to um, have a lot of friends who were part of a pagan group that was kind of, you know, keeping alive the Norse myths today. And I remember I was at a party when the news of the Thor movie coming out was released. And there were a couple of them and a couple of people who were big fans of the Thor comic books. And they were arguing about which one of them was more concerned about the, getting the story wrong, you know, in terms of like... Uh, and, and I think th the way they've done it, though, is 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 very interesting and in that 
you know, in terms of this, like, you know, it's from a mythology that's written thousands of years before we understood all, how all this works. And the, the kind of the way that I, 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 what I like about the way that he does the, the, the tree there, to, to me, at least I still got the sense that he is talking about like, this is our understanding of it, but he is still talking about his kind of metaphor. You know, this is kind of going to what you're saying, Miles. It's that like, this is the metaphor that we've known for, for generations. And over time, like our people might have had a better understanding of how the stars work and stuff like that. Um, cause you're right. I think this was, we talked a while ago on this podcast about how until now, Every Marvel movie had been very kind of like, quote unquote, science, but scientifically based. You know, Tony Stark builds this thing. It's a machine. It works like machines do. There's a certain amount of chemicals that went into uh, Ed Norton as, you know, to become the Hulk. Um, and this was the first like, no, we're going we're going into magic. We're going into religiosity. We're going off the planet. So, yeah, it, it kind of is fitting that they're, they're, they're still kind of tentative, you know. But, mm-hmm. you know, you, but you can see like it goes from this like. Without this, I don't think you ever get to Guardians of the Galaxy, you know, or that kind of like way off into cosmicness. I was literally just thinking that. <laughs> mm. This is our bridge movie, our rainbow bridge movie, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there exactly. Well, there he, go. he literally says at one point, where I live, magic and science are one. So it's literally like, okay, well, I'm guiding you through the nexus of these two things as we transition to the next level. Right. Yeah, we talked about that, too, because it's like. They are one, but there's also still magic. <laughs> it's like okay, well, yeah. because Loki's Loki's clearly just doing magic, uh, <laughs> yeah. so it's yeah. it's one of those things. Illusions, right? Exactly. I also just want to point out, at least based on kind of the the general drawings of Yggdrasil and kind of the like the position of the different realms. I, I'm not sure Thor, I mean, clearly we're not necessarily meant to be seeing him pointing them out specifically, but the way that he's doing it, it makes it look like he's starting from the bottom and kind of going up the right side as he kind of names everything off. And it's like, I don't think he's pointing out where any of them are actually, because when he says Midgard, he's like down at the bottom and then Alfheim, Vanaheim, Jotunheim, Asgard, and I, I feel like he's just completely on the wrong part of the of the tree, pointing these things out. But so I feel he's like me uh, before I actually started to drive, and my understanding of where things were in my neighborhood and in my town, like. Thor doesn't drive from place to place. That's Heimdall's job. So he never yeah. works the Bifrost himself. So True. his understanding, you know, yeah. it's not clear. I, I, grew, I grew up in New York City where no one drives. You just take the subway. And so you like you go down into the ground and you come back up and there's just like little like five block in every direction radius like island around the subway station. And I had no idea about like how these different islands connected mm. to each other. And I think Thor with the, the Bifrost could be the same. I had one quick question before we uh, hop over to uh, back to Asgard. And this is just a question because we have this this little quiet moment, Jane sleeping and Thor looks over at her and says, thank you, Jane. Um, I mean, what are we what's he thanking her for here? I I mean, what's the sense from all of you? What kind of uh, you know what his thoughts are there? I really do feel like their their conversation there revitalized him. It made him feel useful. He was imparting knowledge to her. She literally picked him up and brushed him off. And and she's kind of rehabilitating him to this new life that he thinks he's leading. And I think he's and she's done it without making him feel stupid or without, you know, yelling at him or patronizing him other than ogling him. So I think to him, it's a really healing moment. Because we're going in such in-depth analysis, it's hard to remember that we're not that, in terms of the movie, we're not that far beyond when he just had his world crushed and realized, like, not only could, you know, I not pick up my hammer, but 
because he still believes his brother, you know, I killed my dad. My mom hates me. I started a war. I like everything that he has believed about himself is gone. And and yeah, I think I see it perfectly. She's helping him rediscover himself. You know, it's that kind of like, oh, you know, I, I was a high school football, you know, star and then I broke my leg. What am I now? You know, mm-hmm, exactly. And so I think that's. Yeah. Yeah. Just this nice moment. Yeah. Uh, well, let's get back to the football team then, because we uh, we cut back to um, the, we're back to the healing room, and we start with this kind of uh, shot of the the pattern on the ground, and then it kind of cuts up. Uh, just remember the technical side there; it's like it's a very hard cut, and and we start with the pattern. What do you think is going on? What, what are we trying to learn in the in this shot and the way it's done? It's it, I don't know. It's a, it's an odd choice uh, to make here. I mean, I, the music cut makes sense. You know, we're cutting to a new scene. It's a different dramatic flow in this next scene, so that makes sense. But yeah, starting kind of on the floor, we're looking at the pattern of the uh, the healing room floor here as we then tilt up to kind of see the Warriors Three and Sif uh, in there. Uh, I, I don't know. It was an odd way to start the scene, but I guess it's one of those things. You know, the the director is always trying to find the right way to transition from one scene to the other. We need something. Let's just do that, and it gives it kind of an interesting look. That's that's my best guess. I suppose there is something to just showing a very distinctly Asgardian look as we go from something so very so very mundane, so very human, to get a little bit of that otherworldly, fantastical visual to it. But yeah, strange. I, I feel like it kind of echoes Thor's. Uh, entry into Earth, and then later on jumping ahead, the Warriors 3 and Sifts to Earth, it always starts looking down, like they're shooting into this area. So it's kind of like they're shooting us back into Asgard. Yeah, I, I think it's that. It's all of that. I also think we're seeing Thor at peace, and the, the Warriors 3 and Sif are not at peace. They're very troubled. You know, I think it's part. it also helps to sort of show, like, the emotional character has changed dramatically. Um, and, and and so let's talk about what happens there. And I, I do need to start by saying, listen, some people have really bad days and they don't eat for a couple of days. I'm glad for you. I have a bad day. I eat everything in the house. Mm-hmm. And if there were four wild boars, six pheasant, a side of beef, two casks of ale, I might do that too. And I, you know, <laughs> Fandle, people stressy, don't get a Volstag for it. Like I, I just need, you know, rotund redheads. I need to stand with you. So, and Volstag has a, a specifically as guardian constitution. Like they're stress eating, and then there yeah. is literally divine stress eating. So the amount of food Fandral's describing, I mean, that sounds pretty reasonable if you are Volstag, one of the Warriors Three, Volstag the Voluminous, Volstag the Valiant, the Lion of Asgard, you know? Right. <laughs> Which does make you wonder how much Thor was eating to become Fat Fat Thor for the Infinity War, but that's a whole other story. I think Midgardian food is just, <laughs> it's, it's much less healthy. It's very processed, you know? Things are a lot more uh, more whole food oriented in Asgard. Okay, yeah. That's... His physical activity was way down, too. Like, even now, Volstagg's still very active. Yeah. Uh, well, so, the, other than the, you know, my, my constant frustration with the fat jokes, what would, as people who really love the Warriors 3, what'd you think of the scene and, and what we get there, especially between Fandral and Volstagg? I felt like the, the, the Volstagg eating was like their way of showing his personality. It's like, what's, what's the shorthand for this character? Oh, he likes to eat. He likes to eat and drink and have a good time. So, for, for me, of course, there's not nearly enough Warriors 3 or Sif in any of the movies or the MCU in general. So, it's kind of nice, but it's kind of frustrating that it, they're boiled down to these very brief moments. And I think that's especially true for, for Volstagg, because the fat jokes frustrate me as well. Like, yes, that's always been a part of the character in the comics i'll we, we have to grant that that's stanley started it and it just sort of kept going i mean he was originally based on falstaff i believe so i guess shakespeare started it when you get down to it and so 
I guess if you're going to boil these characters down to a single trait, okay, that's where you go with Volstag. But that is unfortunate, both because it does turn him into a continual fat joke, and because we miss out on the other legitimate parts of his personality. Like, And when we talk about the deleted scene that's coming up very shortly, uh, we, we can get to more of that. But yeah, that's that's Volstag. Although I guess in some ways he fares better than Fandral, whose main personality in the movie is I look like Errol Flynn. <laughs> yeah. And I know that I look like Errol Flynn. Mm-hmm. Is the other part yeah, of his personality just, right? They they just turned him into uh, just vanity Smurf, really. I mean, just yeah. constantly, <laughs> constantly looking at himself. He's the face man of this particular A team. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's it, you know it's frustrating. I mean, we've talked a lot about the Warriors Three and Sif over the course of this conversation because there was a lot that was cut out of them uh, from the script that was just more jokes, more and more jokes. And and sometimes they work, sometimes they don't work. And oftentimes it is things like when they're on uh, Jotunheim, uh, there's a moment where uh, where Volstag knocks down a, a one of the Jotuns with his big belly and things like that. Like, I mean, they really were taking it to, you know, to kind of to the level of the comics. And, you know, there are times where it works and there are times that it was that, that it just didn't. I really feel Kenneth Branagh, it didn't work for him. He cut a lot of it out. And I think that works better for the film. You're right, though. It does really diminish the characters. And I think that they are characters you could have done something really interesting with. And instead, over the course of the three films, you just get less and less to the point where they just really are just completely written out. And it's, yeah. uh, you know, it's a shame. I think that they could have done something interesting with them. I mean, they're technically dead in the MCU now, right? After Except for Sif. Yeah, except for <laughs> Sif. But they are gods, so I keep hoping they're going to come back and have their own Disney Plus show. Like, obviously, that's where they should yeah. be. De- death is such a loose concept in the MCU, even before, you know, Loki and, and you know, said, yeah, reality, let's have many with the multiverse. So I, <laughs> they may come back. I, and I just want to ask one more thing on there. I think we're going to get, as you said, a lot more to Volstagg when we get later into the week. But I have been seeing him. And again, I don't know the comics well, so I mostly just see it from this. For me, he is very much the kind of Tolkien dwarf archetype, you know, of like, again, like big axe, big beard, big belly, big appetite, big love for life. And it's funny, I keep thinking of him in those terms we saw in this scene. He's he's tall. Um, but do you think that's a fair description in the comics? Does he have that kind of like that that Tolkien dwarf like uh you know, attitude to him. Hmm. I would think of him as more of a dwabbit, if you will, because certainly there are those qualities. Mm-hmm. But love of home and hearth mm-hmm. is also a big part of Volstag. He's the heart of the Warriors Three. Mm-hmm. He's also the heart of his own very large family. Like at one point during Walter Simonson's run of the comic, uh, these two Earth children are orphaned and they're brought to Asgard, and Volstag just takes them in and is a great dad. And all of his and his wife's various children just welcome these kids in, and so. I think that is that's something the movie certainly barely touches. And like you said, we'll 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 get to that more later. But we get the dwarf side in this movie. We don't get the hobbit side. And I think that's unfortunate. Yeah. In the comics, you know, at first, Volstagg does start as a joke, kind of a cowardly glutton, but it, he evolves in a way that it is just a an enjoyment of pleasure, an enjoyment of life. And in a way, it's almost kind of a smokescreen for the serious business that he can do and be. It's almost like it's his own Clark Kent sort of persona. Like mm. when push comes to shove, don't forget you're dealing with an incredibly formidable warrior who can destroy almost everybody. Just because he likes to party doesn't mean, you know, that he can't, you know, help 
people and 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 destroy. Well, I love that you're saying that because I feel like that was kind of the missing piece of the puzzle. You know, Andy and I have been going through this movie, and and Andy, you know a lot more about them than I do, but there were so many scenes from the Warriors three that were left on the cutting room floor that I think we were kind of happy had happened that way, and even when. Of the parts of the Warriors Three that we got in the movie, I I I remember thinking when people said they wanted more of the Warriors Three, I didn't. It's like why they're just they're just comic relief. And, and hearing what you're talking about, it sounds like there's a whole other side to them that maybe you're right would have been much better in a like I can't imagine how you would have had all of that in this movie without it becoming a three hour movie. Maybe this is one more thing you need a Disney Plus series for. But it's it's nice to hear there is a lot more to these characters. Mm-hmm. In the comics, the relationship between Sif and Thor is incredibly complex and nuanced. Do they have their own fallings out, their own romantic history? You know, whereas here she's like, I'm a girl, but I'm still a good warrior. And I've spent a lot of my time breaking up fights. You're like, uh, I'm glad you're here. I hope you get more. Like, (laughs) It's okay. She gets sent to clean up duty on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., so that's much better. I'm hoping that they'll do something interesting with her when she's back in in Love and Thunder, because uh, you know, considering, I mean, they they very gently play up a moment in Dark World, uh, a conversation between her and Frigga about kind of that longing that she's long had for Thor that's never resulted in anything. Um, so clearly, they were hinting at something; it just mm-hmm. never went anywhere. So I really hope by the time we get to this next film, uh, which should be coming soon, uh, you know that they there is a little more evolution in that because I, I feel like there's room for that, you know? Especially because, and I've talked about this before, but especially because in the Loki TV show, um, they use her in a, you know, it's a very small way, but it's a way that's actually a direct callback to a very important important story from the mythology. Um, that kind of tells me that, yeah, she's going to be an important part of both Loki and Thor's journey going forward. Uh, all right. Well, now that my uh, uh, defense of the rotund redhead has been uh, satisfied, let's talk about what else we saw in the scene. What else did you kind of get out of this? I, you know, the one uh, thing that stands out for me. Uh, well, first of all, I just want to say watching uh, Volstag devour what I'm assuming it's a piece of wild boar. It's pretty disgusting how rapidly he's eating it. It's just like, eh, okay, I know that I know they were going that route for the joke, but it's just a little, it's a little. In, it's a little gross. Well, and as someone with a with a big beard himself, like, no, no, no. If you have a big beard, you eat more carefully, not less carefully. Otherwise, it's going to be horrifying <laughs> for the rest of the day until you can shower. <laughs> and don't do it while you're lying on your back. Everything falls into your beard. Yeah. <laughs> Just swallowing is harder that way. Come on. Exactly, exactly. No, but the other interesting thing that I noticed, I mean, we, we've talked about how interesting the position of camera is. Uh, throughout the film has been uh, that Brana has chosen to use. And here, I mean, the God's eye view shot he uses quite often throughout the film, which is very fitting in a film, you know, in this particular uh, storyline. Uh, but I find it really interesting. We have this God's eye view shot over Volstag while he's, while he's lying on the bench eating and Fandral's pacing. We see the top of this giant ram's head on the right of the frame. It's just, it's, it's like such an, a sudden surprising cut that we have here. I can't help but think that this was a moment that perhaps uh, Brana was using to imply Heimdall is at this point watching. I mean, it's going to be something that certainly will come up here in a second. But we go to that shot in particular points when Heimdall might be watching. And I think that's another implication of that shot here in this scene. That's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. I like that. And that actually raises a question for me that I'm unsure of. 
does Heimdall have the, does Heimdall's all seeing eyes see things in Asgard as well, or is it just outside of Asgard? At least in the comics. Uh, my understanding is it's everybody, uh, or it's everywhere rather. Like right now in the comics, uh, Sif is actually the in the Heimdall role. Heimdall's currently dead, and uh, or injured, I think dead. Anyway, um, and she's definitely seen things in Asgard before. I think it's just that to see things really far away, um, he has to. Uh, is it Hlidskjalf? Is that where the the high seat is that can see absolutely everywhere? We can go sometimes. Valaskjalf is the palace. I can't remember if that's yeah, and then. Himmenbjorg is the observatory, but I don't know. Okay. Yeah. It, it may also be that, like, uh, the, the Marvel comics just created, like, their own entirely new places that with names that sounded Icelandic. I don't know how accurate yes. any of that stuff is. I know way more <laughs> about the comics than actual Norse mythology. Uh, I know that there's a chair, and it's on a mountain, right, and right. it can see everywhere, and I think Heimdall uses that to see far away. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, that hasn't been brought in the film. They pretty much imply he's just got amazing eyes and he can just mm-hmm. see just by looking like we see him earlier in the film watching Thor when Thor fails at lifting Mjolnir. So uh, clearly it's just great eyes. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's it's uh, I, it's an interesting element to kind of throw in this whole thing with Heimdall and and, uh, you know, his view of things. So, right. Mm hmm. Yeah. So, uh, anything else from this minute? I, I I wanted to comment that that line. Do not mistake my appetite for apathy. I I kind of feel like the filmmaker, like that the the the, the cinematographer, at least certainly the director, is more on uh, the let's make fun of him side because, as you said about the way that that the, the eating is shown. But I I like that he gets to say that. You know that he's saying like for me this is not. I'm not eating because I don't care. I'm eating mm-hmm. because I care. Um. But so beyond that, what any other last things you want to mention about this minute before we uh, wrap up for today? Uh, I think that's that's what I had right there. Um, I'm, I'm excited to talk about all of the many, many things that come next. More Warriors 3, more Heimdall, more everything. Mm-hmm. Only other thing I was going to mention is I, I think it's a nice kind of shot where, you know, you have Fandral and Volstagg kind of come come to loggerheads and, and Hogan and Sif were behind them and they kind of they go around to get to them. And it's just this nice kind of like framing shot of the two of them coming in to they're kind of pulling them apart. Although Hogan is kind of like loosely putting a hand on his shoulder <laughs> to pull him away. Like, but there you go. Well, it's been great having the two of you on. Uh, really looking forward to this whole week. Uh, tell us more about this podcast that you two did together and where people can find it. So we did a show called Thor the Lightning in the Storm, uh, which was a miniseries podcast covering Walter Simonson's amazing 80s run of Thor. And uh, that is still up uh, all these many years later at thelightninginthestorm.com or on uh, assorted and various podcatchers. And we were, it was supposed to be 13 episodes, but we did actually get to do a bonus 14th episode where we interviewed Walter Simonson himself. So that was like a nerve wracking and perfect wrap up to that podcast. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Well, great to have you both on. We're looking forward to this week. Uh, And as always, thank you so much for all you do to make these happen. And to our fans, you're the reason we do this. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your support and have a great day. Until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is One Last Ride by Martin Puringer. Find the show at truestory.fm. And if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show. Mm-hmm.